Welcome to The Afterglow. The Afterglow podcast gives women, we're talking to you, the permission and tools to live life according to your own rules. Yes, this is a platform to educate and empower women identifying humans through intriguing conversations with courageous Canadian women who are breaking down limiting beliefs and outdated rules. These women have done it, are doing it, or can provide tools for you to do the same. We are Julie Watson and Liz Doyle-Harmer. And we started Afterglow, our yoga studio, after years of staying home to raise kids. Now, as podcasters, we want to help others do the same. Step into your own power. It's time to shake things up and get real about who you are and what you want. The Afterglow is your next act. It's what came after you did what you were told and instead decided to do what was in your heart. It's how you have reinvented yourself. It's your vision for the next 40 to 50 years. It's when you took your power back. Wouldn't you just love if everything was so easy when you were deciding to buy or sell your house? Yeah. That's how we feel too. That's why we have teamed up with the Richards Group and they are our sponsors for this episode and many more to come. And we are so ever grateful to them. So check them out, therichardsgroup.ca. Welcome to the Afterglow. We are so thrilled today to have Janella Massa join us. Janella Massa is a Canadian television journalist, an Afro-Latina Muslim reporter and anchor. She became Canada's first hijab-wearing television reporter in 2015, and the first news anchor in hijab when she anchored the 11 p.m. newscast for City News. An honors graduate of York University and Seneca College, she has worked both behind the scenes and on air for local and national Canadian news outlets since 2010, including CTV News, CFRB, and Rogers Television, and has been published in the Globe and Mail and the National Post. In 2020, the CBC announced that she would join the network as host of a primetime show and be a special correspondent for The National. Her show, Canada Tonight, premiered on January 11, 2021. Janella's gift of the gab brought her to seeking out her passion through journalism and media. She is a force with energy and intelligence that parallel her perseverance and talent. We learned so much from this episode regarding the limitations women are constantly faced with, especially women of color. She is honest and open about everything, and we are so grateful. Welcome to the Afterglow, Janella. Yeah, so nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you as well. <laughs> um, we, we like to start way back. Like you grew up in Panama and then you immigrated to Canada with your mom. Yeah, I actually grew up in Toronto. I was born in Panama, oh. but I came to Toronto when I was only a year old. Okay. So Toronto is home for me, in, you know, for all in intents and purposes. Um, but yeah, my family is from Panama. Um, I have kind of an interesting background, you know, Anytime people ask me where I'm from, I know it's the beginning of a long story or a long conversation. Um, you know, my um, I was born in Panama, Spanish-speaking parents. My family actually is Catholic. 
Um, and uh, my mom divorced my dad in Panama and she came to Canada with me and my older sister. And here in Canada, um, she converted to Islam. She was, you know, had a lot of Muslim friends and was kind of exposed to the religion and, and um, became interested in it and decided to convert. So I was maybe three or four at the time. So I was raised Muslim, but most of my family, my extended family, including my dad, is Catholic. And so it is a little bit of a, of a unique and strange thing for them because there are so few Muslims in Panama. It's like 99.9% Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have this interesting mix of identities, you know, being Panamanian, Spanish speaking, um, Afro-Latina, being Canadian, being a Muslim, wearing hijab. Um, so yeah, all of these identities kind of inform, you know, who I am. Wow. Yeah. I'm so curious if that checks a lot of boxes, right. In terms of race, ethnicity, religion, all of that. And one of the things we researched is just, and heard about it was just your mom and the strength of your mom to really support you through, um, you know, challenging periods in terms of wearing the hijab to school. So tell us more about your mom and her influence on you. Yeah. I mean, even just that story, when I think back to it is like, she was a trailblazer, you know, in the time people thought she was kind of crazy, like going to a country that she knew very little of. She had come here previously um, on a scholarship to learn English and she'd come for six months and she thought this is where I'm going to come and try and start my new life. So she got me and my sister and came back and had, you know, a hundred dollars in her pocket, a single mom with two babies Uh, not a lot of English. And, you know, people would call her either crazy or brave, whichever one you want to label it. Um, But if it wasn't for that kind of fearless sort of attitude, you know, um, I don't think I would be where I am because she was someone who was always, um, you know, up for the challenge. Um, You know, people would tell her that's too crazy. That's too risky. Um, you know, you're not going to make it, you know, and she persevered. So I think that that's something that she really kind of instilled in me. Um, and yeah, you know, especially having converted to Islam and recognizing that, you know, we were now minority within a minority in a Western country, um, not wanting us to feel like outsiders. She always wanted us to be proud of our, um, of our heritage, of our religion, and not feel ashamed of it, and not feel mm-hmm. like those identities were at odds with each other. That we could be Canadian and be Muslim and be, you know, Afro-Latinas, and and all of those things um, can all exist in the same at, at one place, and that it's not something to be ashamed of. So she would always be, you know, going to the school and like lobbying them to do assemblies during Ramadan or Eid, and like. Um, you know, kind of encouraging us to let other people know about our religion so that it didn't feel so foreign. Mm -hmm. And um, especially, you know, me and my sister, we were the only ones wearing hijab in school growing up in North York. And um, it was so funny because we would do that. And then suddenly it was like all the other Muslims came out of the woodwork like, oh, I'm Muslim too. Or like, actually, I'm from here. And we, this is what we do back home. And suddenly other people who felt shy or felt like you know, that was something that they had to kind of suppress or keep at home, suddenly felt like they could also celebrate that. Mm. Um, So that was really nice to kind of have that sense of community and and culture growing up. Um, That's really interesting. Both Liz and I grew up Catholic, uh, pretty Catholic. We went to Catholic schools, Catholic high schools. And so, you know, we learned about world religions, but there wasn't really a, you know, let's celebrate this, celebrate that. It was all, we just really celebrated the Catholic holidays, right? And so when you said, you know, celebrating Islam and celebrating your religion and your culture, I'm curious as to why, and you said that your mom was, you know, surrounded by and interested, but why 
she did get drawn towards this and and what was it about Islam that she really you know connected with yeah I mean I don't want to speak for her too much it's kind of her story to tell but I know that she has talked a lot about the fact that you know and a lot of people don't recognize that Islam is a monotheistic religion right and that um, it's one of the Abrahamic religions. So a lot of the pillars within Islam and a lot of the things that we follow are actually very similar to Christianity and Judaism. And so um, as much as growing up, she had thought it was some other foreign religion because she didn't know much about it. Once she kind of made friends, you know, in ESL and people from different cultures and religions, um, she realized how much um, similarities mm. there were. She didn't have to give up Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus is a prophet uh, in Islam. He's revered as, you know, one of the holiest uh, people in our religion as well. And, uh, and we believe in all of the other prophets, Abraham, Moses. Um, and so all of those stories from the Bible, she didn't have to let go. In fact, she was only building more upon it. So she says in some ways she felt like um, she was just building on the, the, um, the religion that she already knew and loved and, and was able to answer some other questions that she felt like were unanswered. Mm. I'm curious about for you then, because um, I, I believe I had read that and some of the feedback, early feedback you got, the negative early feedback you had received from some people when you were announced as the anchor is that, you know, the hijab is a symbol of oppression. We're not going to support this. And so what does your spirituality mean for you if you're comfortable about speaking about it? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, my mom converted when I was so young. So I grew up in the religion in the sense that it, it was, it was always something that was with me as much as, you know, I would go to my, my dad's and my aunt's and, you know, we'd spend Christmas there and I was exposed to other religions. Um, you know, for me, my mom always encouraged us to ask questions and to understand why we would do what we did and, and not to just follow blindly. So for me, it was always a choice. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think what I love, uh, you know, I definitely people look at, at hijab and they see it as this symbol of oppression. Um, and sometimes I make the joke that like high heels are a symbol of oppression. <laughs> like, they can be, you know I mean? they hurt. So yeah. true. So true. <laughs> at the end of the day, it's about choice and it's about making, making a choice about how much of my body I want to give to the rest of the world mm -hmm. and how much of it I want to save for myself and for my family, my husband and to God. And so for me, it's, it's really about personal choice. And there are lots of Muslims who don't wear hijab and, um, and it's not a, it's not representative of how religious you are. I know lots of people who I would say are more religious than me who don't wear a hijab because religion is such a complete um, part of your life. There are so many different aspects of it. Um, you know, I'm still striving and struggling to, to be a good person of faith. And hijab is just one part of that, right? Um, for me, you know, I think that it always allowed me to kind of put an emphasis on my intelligence, on what I had to say, what was in my head, as opposed to what I was wearing. Um, and I think especially as women, you know, and, and in this field, especially, there's so much focus on what we're wearing, how we're dressed, you're too covered or you're not covered enough. No one's going to take you seriously. You're too frumpy. You're too sexy. You're right. And it doesn't matter what it is. There's always going to be criticisms and complaints and this very patriarchal view of, of women as these sexualized beings. And so for me, I, I feel like I'm taking some of my power back mm -hmm. um, by choosing how I want to present myself. And at the end of the day, it's just about choice. A lot of people talk about, oh, you know, women are forced and it's true, there are women who are forced to wear the hijab or to do certain things.
But for me, it's about choice. And I don't think anyone should force any woman in, you know, into wearing something that they do or don't feel comfortable with that, whether that is to dress them or undress them, right? I mean, in France, we're seeing um, bans on hijab, bans on um, modest swimwear, bans on modest clothing. Um, and that to me is problematic as well. The same way, um, I don't think that women should be forced to cover. I don't think they should be forced to undress either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're speaking about a lot of the systems of oppression that exist in our culture and society that a lot of us don't even really realize are there. I mean, you talk about high heels, you know, people don't even notice that that can be a system of oppression and how it's like celebrated <laughs> when women are in hot high heels, right? Don't get me uh, wrong. I love high heels. <laughs> and in fact, I've actually like gotten flack for wearing them. People are like, oh, if you're so modest, why are you wearing makeup or why are you wearing high heels? And again, it comes back to choice. This is how I feel comfortable. This is where I want to drive my line. And, and that's for me, not for you. Yeah. And we do have these options, right? So we do get to choose, which I love. And so I'm curious about who your role models were growing up and what, you know, you have this sense of like, groundedness and knowing yourself and this courage. So who were your role models? Honestly, like it's such a cliche, but my mom and my older sister were kind of the big role models for me. I mean, even, you know, people ask me how I started wearing hijab and I don't have any real sort of philosophical or spiritual answer. It started because my mom was wearing it and my sister was wearing it and I wanted to be like them. I didn't want to be left out. And, uh, you know, my mom actually didn't want me to wear it. She thought I was too young and I didn't really understand what it meant, but I was very stubborn. <laughs> and so it became so much a part of my identity. Um, I don't know who I would be without it. Um, but yeah, they were really my role models. As I said, my mom was such a trailblazer. She was somebody who was always, you know, she didn't wait to be asked, like she didn't ask permission. She, she was somebody who would pull up a seat to the table uh, mm -hmm. and not wait to be asked. And, you know, and my sister very much as well, very, I, you know, I had these very strong women um, in my life who I could look to and, and aspire to be like. Mm. And that trailblazing definitely baked into you, passed down to you uh, in terms of walking into, you know, uh, broadcasting media and not seeing people like you, right? And then finding yeah. the courage to be able to break in and make space for yourself anyways. So how were you yeah. able to do that, support yourself through that? You know, I think that sometimes uh, I may have been my own, you know, I may have been the person putting a barrier in front of myself early on in, you know, I was that kid who was super talkative in class. You know, that was the number one comment I would get on my report card. Janelle is a good student, but she talks too much when she's not supposed to. <laughs> and so, you know, um, my, my mom actually, you know, encouraged me, put that talking to good use, you know, she could see me doing something in the spotlight, whether it was She's a wise woman. Yeah. <laughs> so she was like, you know, play to your strengths, right? If mm. that's your strength, I always wanted to be the center of attention. And so um, she kind of encouraged me to, to go down this path. And I, um, I actually said to her, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll go into radio because, you know, then it doesn't matter what I look like. And, you know, it's just about mm. my voice. And she was like, well, why, you know, you like, you have this energy, you deserve to be on TV and, and be a star and people should see that. Like, don't, don't take, don't diminish yourself or don't limit yourself. Um, just because you think that maybe, you know, um, just cause it hasn't been done before. doesn't mean you can't do it. Right. So she really did encourage me a lot to, to kind of, um, go after it. Um, 
I just want to say, yeah, it was you, don't, you don't have kids yet, right? I, I no, think. I don't. I've because stepped, that, I've as, stepped a, as a mom, that takes a great deal of courage, right? Because a lot of times you want to protect your children and not have them get hurt, right? So for her to be able to do that and lift you up and say, you know what, fly, butterfly, fly. Yeah, exactly, amazing. right? And I think for her, you know, she saw something in me that she felt like if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you, right? And she mm-hmm. saw that in me more than I saw it in myself in many ways. Um, so, you know, she was one of my biggest cheerleaders and, and even, you know, now getting this show, I don't think even she imagined that like, or dreamed this big for me. Mm. Um, and so it's so funny. I remember we were talking when I first got hired at CBC uh, for this new show, Canada tonight, and we were talking, we were in the development stages still. And, um, because we, I wasn't just hired as a host. I, I was hired also as part of the show development. Like it didn't have a name. It didn't have a concept. Um, all of these things. And so we were talking about the name, the name of the show. And um, there had been a time where it had been floated, like maybe we would call it Janella Massa Live or Janella Massa Tonight. And I said that to her and she said, wait, wait, wait a minute. It's your own show? <laughs> and I said, yes, mom. Like I was hired a month ago. Like I told you all of this. Like, I think even though I told her, she didn't even really process, like that's what it was. Like I was doing my own show. Um, so it took a while for that to kind of sink in. <laughs> Mm, mm. you're talking about, um, you know, some of the limitations, like the aesthetics, you know, how you looked wearing the hijab, um, that were kind of obstacles for you to, to push through and limitations, though, whether you saw them or not, and your mom just seemed like such a force to help you get through that. What are some other limitations that you might have experienced either going through journalism school or, um, you know, when you first got into the workforce? Yeah, I mean, one of the big conversations that's happening even now is around this idea around impartiality and bias and objectivity in journalism, which is seen as like one of the important pillars. But um, I think that that's starting to shift a little bit, especially after the conversation around Black Lives Matter in the last year. But, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is like, oh, how can you be impartial? How can you be objective when you're so obviously making a statement about yourself and about your religion? Um, And in many ways, I say it's actually the opposite. I'd say the threshold is higher for me because um, everyone has biases. Everyone has opinions. Um, No one is truly objective. But the best thing that we can do as journalists is check our bias, recognize it, check it at the door, and then be able to, to examine a story from all sides. And actually being close to the story in many ways makes us better storytellers. And the example that I used is COVID-19, right? This is the biggest story of our lifetime in news. And anyways, it's been uh, uh, an intense news cycle for the last uh, year plus. And this is a story that every single journalist that is writing on or reporting on is directly impacted by, directly connected to. Maybe we have kids who are um, doing online schooling and we have opinions about how the province has, you know, rolled that out. Maybe we have a spouse who runs a small business and we have opinions about the lockdown or, you know, maybe we have opinions about vaccines and, um, but we're able to check those opinions at the door and do our jobs to be objective, impartial journalists. So for some reason, that question seems to only be raised particularly to journalists of color. Um, It came up a a lot around Black Lives Matter and whether Black journalists, journalists of color um, could, uh, you know, attend, say, a BLM rally or put Black, post Black Lives Matter on their social media. And the argument was, well, this is not 
a two sides issue. This is an issue of human rights. And so we should be able to speak about our lived experiences without being seen as um, unable to be objective or unbiased or impartial because we're connected to this story. So I think there's a little bit of a shift happening around the idea of impartiality, especially because I think often, you know, whiteness was seen as neutral. Um, the, the structures that, that uh, the, the systems of, of journalism were, you know, very white, very male. And, and it was something that was shocking to me, you know, even coming into my first newsroom in Toronto um, as an intern in the most multicultural city in the world, right? And walking into the newsroom and like counting the people of color on my hand and being like, this doesn't reflect the Toronto that I grew up in, doesn't look like it. And so the, when the people who, who choose what stories are told, who, who are the gatekeepers to, you know, um, what, you know, what uh, topics are important to talk about, what issues we're going to look at uh, or examine, when they all look the same and they all have the same experiences and the same ideas of the world, and they don't reflect the community that we are serving, because journalism is a service, it's a public good, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're doing a disservice to our communities by, by not reflecting that. That's so interesting. Like I can see kind of this old model of just keep your opinions and your emotions away. And then this newer model of diverse perspectives, right? Different yeah. opinions. And also the idea that like, keep your opinions and your emotions away. And it's like, well, if I'm black, I can't remove my skin. Like mm -hmm. that is my experience. That is my lived experience. And it, yes, it is going to impact how I tell this story. And that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It allows the journalists to bring their humanity, I would think, to the mm -hmm. storytelling process. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things you said is that you want to bring fresh perspectives to, um, to, to your work. And so what, what perspectives or what stories are you really excited about telling? Yeah, I mean, for me, people talk a lot about diversity in journalism. And to me, that doesn't just mean diverse stories in the sense of, um, you know, race. For, you know, for us on Canada Tonight, we talk about diversity in terms of geography, making sure that we don't just do stories about Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal and the big cities, right? If we're here to be a national show, then we want to reflect some of the rural communities and, and you know, Yellowknife and Winnipeg and um, all these other places. And so we make a concerted effort to do that. And also a diversity in terms of um, who are experts that we bring on. So if we're going to have a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, we're doing a story about real estate and we're talking to a family. Um, what does that look like, right? Often we only bring on people of color to talk about race, but we are experts in lots of different things and have, um, you know, um, experiences and, and, and uh, knowledge and expertise in lots of different areas. And so when we kind of perpetuate that, that people of color can only talk about race, complain about race, talk about racism, um, we're, we're also kind of... Uh, doing ourselves a disservice because, you know, people of color are members of our community in many other ways. Um, and so let's show that. Hmm. I read, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, in terms of race, you have um, uh, Black, uh, um, Spanish, as yeah. well as Indigenous. <laughs> uh, and so you've got this kind of like, you're your own little melting pot. Um, <laughs> yeah but that you actually had a hard time embracing that black side of yourself. So can you tell us a little bit about that in your life? Yeah. So growing up in a Latin American country, you know, we also deal with our own internalized racism and uh, you know, we dealt with colonization, we dealt with slavery, <clears throat> but it's not something that's really talked about. And so growing up, you know, for a long time identified as Latina, Hispanic. Um, 
but if you look at my family and, you know, I'm kind of lighter skin, but if you look at my family and my, my grandparents, my dad, like they're dark skin, dark curly hair, like we're black. <laughs> but if you were to ask my grandmother, she would never identify as that because in her mind, you know, um, black quote unquote, were, uh, for example, people who had come to Panama from the Caribbean, they were Jamaican, they spoke English, um, that's black. And so she didn't see herself as that, even though we know there has to be some ancestry in our, in our family um, related to slavery. And we did know that we had um, connections to indigenous um, uh, uh, tribes in Panama. My, my great grandmother was indigenous. Um, and so it was such an interesting, you know, only when I was, I think, in university, I first heard the term Afro-Latina. And I thought, that's it. That's what I am. And I was the first time I kind of had, you know, this realization that, you know, I can be both and that I am both and that I should embrace that. Um, but I don't know too much about our ancestry or our history. Um, and even Panama itself now is only now starting to recognize, like they just started doing a census a couple of years ago and they have different categories now where they include those identities. Um, and so my aunt actually just recently did a 23andMe and that's what you're referring to, um, uh, where we, mm-hmm. and I've always wanted to do it, but I've just never, you know, gotten to do it. And she, you know, discovered that we are, I think it was something like 60% indigenous. I totally forgot. I have to go and look, but it was, it was a, 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 a large percentage was indigenous. Uh, a large percentage was, um, from West Africa, Ghana and Senegal. And then I think it was the smallest percentage was something like 16 or 18% European, which would be Spain, Portugal, um, those places that colonize um, Central and South America. So which it was is interesting like because really- that's how you most identified, but that's like your least percentage, right? Exactly. So that's interesting. Exactly. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I want to do that test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See what's in there. Um, you, you talked about appearance and, you know, just the pressure put on women especially in your line of work. And so you, you had to deal with people judging you based on your hijab. You, you know, people judging you based on your skin color. You had comments on Twitter about the heels you're wearing, as you said. And then recently- My heels, my nail polish, like- yeah. <laughs> And then recently, not too long ago, the size of your body as well, right? Yes. When you went through yes. pancreatic surgery. So tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah. So that was a, a really crazy time in my life. It was only two, three years ago now um, where I had a cyst in my pancreas and I had to have surgery. Uh, they were concerned that it was precancerous and it had to be removed. And it was a pretty invasive surgery. It's called the Whipple. Um, so I had part of my pancreas removed, part of my stomach, um, my gallbladder. And so my entire digestive system was essentially rearranged and, um, you know, it really changed my eating habits and my lifestyle. And, you know, before the surgery, I, and still am, well, I was someone who really loved food and it showed, you know, I was a size 12, sometimes a size 14. Um, And as you said, you know, in an industry where uh, there is so much focus on your appearance and someone asked me once, oh, well, you know, you were very body positive. I'm like, I don't even know that that was something that I, I acknowledged or real recognized. But as somebody who, you know, I was somebody who was always focused on, as I said, you know, my intelligence, my, that's what I based my worth on. And I didn't really think a lot about my body. I was comfortable in my body and I, you know, um, yeah, I was comfortable in my body. And then I had this surgery and I couldn't eat all of the things that I used to be able to eat. 
and I lost a ton of weight. I lost about 40 pounds and it showed. And uh, I think I went down like four sizes and, um, people started to compliment me, comment, Hey, Oh my gosh, you lost so much weight. You look so great. And it, I felt miserable because the things that brought me joy, which was eating pizza and burgers and wings, I could no longer do. I couldn't just go, you know, to a friend's birthday party or a barbecue or out for dinner because I was constantly stressed about what I was going to eat or what I was going to be able to eat. And, um, you know, and so to have people saying, oh my gosh, you look so great. Oh, you must be so happy how skinny you are. And I was like, no, like I'm actually really miserable. And so kind of there being this disconnect where people felt like I must be so excited to have lost all of this weight because I must have been so unhappy at the weight that I was when that was never the case. And I wrote about it um, for Chatelaine about, you know, I, you know, losing out on all of these foods that felt like I was, I'd lost a friend. I was like mourning a friend. Um, I remember, you know, going on vacation to Miami with my husband and getting off the plane and starving and not able to find something that I could eat because my diet was so strict and just like crying in Denny's because I just wanted you know, some, some pancakes, but I couldn't have any. Um, and so people not recognizing that like, um, your size and your weight aren't a measure of your happiness or your health. Um, and so, yeah, it was, um, it was very cathartic for me to write about that um, because it was, it was a, a really difficult time and it still is. I still struggle with my diet and I still, you know, my weight is fluctuating and, and I've gained some back. And that was the other thing I was like, it might all come back. So what's going to happen when I'm back at the size that I am? Like, am I still going to be worthy to you? Cause I'm going to be worthy to me. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to feel when you said, Oh, you looked so great. And so now I don't look great anymore. Um, so, you know, just kind of a commentary on how um, we talk about women's bodies. Mm, can we just like all make a note right now to not comment on people's bodies <laughs> positively or negatively? Like it's nobody else's business, right? Really? Um, we don't know, right? We don't know what yeah. people are going through. You don't know what's going on, right? And so, I mean, I think that's a it's a big part of it, but it does reinforce this like skinny is pretty. Um, uh, and skinny is, is happy. Also. And skinny, skinny is, is happy. Skinny is happy. Right. Skinny yeah. is healthy. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so speaking of that, you, you were a producer, you were working behind the scenes, and then you decided to step out and, you know, bring yourself out in front of the camera. I know there was some, you know, ideas or issues in, in your mind about appearances, but you took this leap, you go from being behind the camera to going in front of the camera, and you got a lot of no's from people when you were first going into this um, sort of new realm for yourself. So tell yeah. us about that time and, and, and how you just, you know, just did it again, uh, yeah. effort and courage. You know, I learned also, you know, in hindsight too, um, that a lot of the people who are successful in this industry aren't always the best or the most talented. They're usually the ones who are the most persistent. Mm. Um, you know, I graduated from school and I look around to, you know, who has made it in the industry and who hasn't. And, and really, you know, it's the ones who are the most persistent, the ones who are willing to take risks, um, the ones who aren't willing to take no for an answer like me. And so, yeah, I did apply, um, a a ton of places. And in particular, the first place that I, the first place that I got hired on air was in Kitchener, Ontario at CTV. Um, I applied there three times. And I got rejected <laughs> multiple times before I finally got a yes. And what I did was every time I would get a no, 
I would ask them for feedback. I would say, you know, the, the first time they said, oh, no, sorry. Um, and I would say, what, you know, what can I do or what are you looking for so that next time, you know, I can work on it. And they said, oh, you know, you just don't have enough shooting skills. It was a video, it was a video journalist position. So it was um, shooting and on air, you have to shoot, but you have to shoot your own content. So they said, you don't have enough videography experience. So I went back, I was at, uh, volunteering at Rogers TV and I went back and I said, hey, I need to get shooting experience. Can you let me go on a couple of shoots? And I said, yes. So I was working on my demo and, um, and I applied again. <laughs> and again, they said, no. And they said, no, we've hired someone internally, uh, but thanks. Um, and I continued on. And actually, you know, talking about risk, um, I actually quit a job that I had as a chase producer. And it was a full-time job with benefits and people thought I was crazy. Why would I quit a job? without another job lined up. And I realized that, you know, if I wanted to be on air and I have no on-air experience, the chance of me getting a full-time on-air job with no experience was slim to none. The opportunities that were available to me were contract, freelance, part-time. You know, people wanna be able to try you out and before they give you a full-time gig, especially if you have very little experience. And because I had a full-time job, I wasn't free to do that. So I quit. And I just started freelancing on the side and applying for jobs. And that's how I landed that, that first job, which was technically a part-time uh, job, but I was working four days a week. So <laughs> four to five days a week. Um, so yeah, so no risk, no reward. And, um, and don't take no for an answer. Those were my, those uh, were my mottos. And keep working hard, right? Like no recognizing that the hijab might be a barrier, making sure that every other skill was mm. at 100%. So that there was nothing else that they could point to and say, oh, you're not, you know, you're not um, suitable for this job. So I had to kind of work twice as hard to make sure that it was a no brainer that I should be the one that they should hire. And if it's not mm -hmm. me, why not? And let's have a conversation about that. Oh, good for you. I mean, I love that. It really, you're like a real life example of what uh, Angela Duckworth says in the book Grit, which is basically that effort will trump talent every single time, right? Just mm -hmm. keep trying. Um, and you're, you're evidence of that. You have talent though, as well as persistence. So, <laughs> <laughs> so well done. Um, you know, Julie and I were just talking before, before you came on about, you know, how do you support yourself? Like speaking personally, when COVID news gets to be too much, I, I turn it off. <laughs> you know, a lot of yeah. times I just, I just turn away from it. So how do you support yourself through these, these ongoing stories? Yeah, I mean, to that point, I'm somebody who actually tries to turn off the news on the weekend. You'd be surprised what my TV watching habits are. Um, a lot of like reality TV and light, fluffy nonsense. Because yeah, it's a lot during the day to constantly be entrenched in that. And so sometimes you do need to turn off and disconnect. Um, it's really hard for me to turn off my phone. It's really hard for me not to look at it. But I try. Um, because yeah, it can get to be a lot. It can get to be, um, you know, you really have to disconnect sometimes. Mm. Uh, do you have like specific sort of self-care strategies or, you know, I mean, mindfulness uh, exercises or anything that you do? Because I know for myself, like I'm a real feeler. And so, you know, from the time I was a little kid, I could not watch the news because I would be so impacted. It's like mm -hmm. watching a scary movie. Like I can never do that. So for you, I don't know if you already have like a boundary or like a, a special sh shield that you have around <laughs> yourself to protect yourself from the, all that stuff penetrating, right? Yeah. I mean, I know you guys are, are really into that 
but I will say that I'm not someone who's into meditation or, or mindfulness or any of that. I've, I've always had a really hard time kind of quieting my mind. Mm. I'm all, it's always going. Um, but to that point, I, I think one of the things is that it's important to allow yourself to feel sad if you are working on a sad story or if you are doing, you know, a lot of times mm. as journalists, we feel as we talked about that objectivity, that impartiality, like we have to put a wall up as if we're not supposed to feel impacted by these things that we're reporting on. And so recognizing that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to go home and cry about, you know, the shooting or the car crash or whatever it is that you just covered um, and feel it and feel sad about it because you are human. Um, so that's number one is, is not shutting off those, those sad feelings. Um, and then number two, the one exercise that I, that does uh, do a lot for my mental health is, uh, riding my bike, um, especially during COVID, it's been a huge help to my mental health because it's one of the few activities I can still do. Um, you know, just being on my bike in the, in the beautiful weather is something that brings me so much joy. So it's something that is very much a part of my, my life. I just want to point out that you do meditate. Riding your bike is a form of meditation. Yeah, I guess it kind and of being, is. <laughs> being mindful and letting yourself cry is mindfulness. So there you go. Oh, okay, very good then. And, but you're right about bike riding in that sense because it is one of the few times where I'm just like nothing else in the world is happening and like it's just me on my bike. Maybe I'm listening to music or something. Um, but it, it is a moment where I can kind of shut out the world. And I was going to say the same thing. There's, I mean, there's mindfulness and meditation in the morning, but, but really what we're aiming for is the ability to have mindfulness of our emotions and our biases throughout our day as we're interacting with other people, right? That's where it really becomes valuable. So you're doing those practices. So that's a, that's a mindful awareness practice, as Julie just said. Uh, one of the questions we love to ask our guests is what would they say to a younger version of themselves? So what would you say to your 15-year-old self? What advice would you have? Yeah, I would say don't be so worried about being liked. <laughs> mm. I, and it's still something that I struggle with, but um, being very much a people pleaser, being very much, um, you know, someone who bends over backwards for other people and not putting myself first. Um, and so, you know, setting boundaries for yourself because people take kindness for weakness sometimes and take advantage of that. Mm. And I learned that the hard way. And, um, you know, it's something that I've, I've, I have, you know, made a concerted effort to um, set more boundaries, to say no, to, to, you know, tell, let people, you teach people how to treat you, right? Um, so recognizing that sometimes just being nice <laughs> isn't going to get you anywhere. And sometimes you have to be a little tougher. <laughs> mm -hmm. I want to just take you back to, you were working at City, City TV, and then you got this job with the CBC. And as you mentioned, you were a part of the whole um, creation of the show, uh, Canada Tonight. So tell us about, you know, the experience of that first night, January 11th, 2021, you know, you're airing your first show where you're the host, like, what was that feeling like for you? <laughs> You know, it's so funny because that night in particular, I wasn't nervous at all. Mm -hmm. I was actually really excited and I felt really good and really comfortable. Like this is where I'm in my comfort zone. It was the weeks leading up to it that I was a wreck. Um, <laughs> a big part of it was because we were, there was so much that is uncertain, especially when you're in news, right? Um, you're reporting on what's happening. So it's not like we could plan in the weeks ahead what our first show is going to look like or what our first week is going to look like because 
we had to wait for news to happen. So I would have these like nightmares that like it was going to be a slow news day. Nothing exciting was happening and we're going to have nothing to talk about on the show. And then of course, like the week before was the Capitol riots. So I was drowning in news. It, it was an embarrassment of riches for our first show. <laughs> and we're also in the middle of COVID. So there was, there was, you know, tons of stuff happening around COVID. So my fears were very much <laughs> yeah. misplaced. Um, so I was really excited. I was really excited. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I'm in my element and that's when I'm, that's when I'm, you know, um, in my happy place. That's when I feel the most com confident is when the light turns on and then, you know, I'm ready to go. That, that anxiety in many ways, that adrenaline is what fuels me, right? Mm -hmm. That feeling of nervousness, um, I channel it into, um, you know, positive energy, um, and, and so that's where I, that's where I feel, you know, the most comfortable and the most confident. So surprisingly, mm. I wasn't very nervous on my first night. And it also had to do with the fact that I had a really great team around me um, that, you know, they're really intelligent and creative, great ideas. And so I felt very safe um, mm. on that first night, which is a really great feeling. Well, you absolutely exude positive energy and Julie brought you back in time and I'd love to bring you forward in time. One of the other questions we love to ask our guests is what is your afterglow, which is really what is your future vision? And, you know, it might, it's likely the one that requires you to overcome additional fears or challenges to push the boundaries, whether internal or external. So what's your future vision, your afterglow for yourself? It's always really hard for me to answer this question partially because the thing that was always the goal for me for so long, I'm here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when people ask me, you know, what's next for you or what's, what's your dream job or what's your dream show? It's like, I feel like I'm here. So yeah. now I have to make a new goal. <laughs> and even this, I mean, I felt like this a year ago when I was at my last job I and mean, people would ask me, you know, what's next for you and say, well, I just want to be really good at this. But I think ultimately, you know, I think, I feel really honored that I, you know, I'm able to have this title of first, but I also don't want to be the only, and I don't want to be the last. Mm -hmm. So I hope that me being here opens the door a little bit for folks behind me. And so that it is not strange or unusual or unique for someone who looks like me to have the position that I have. And it's already happened. I've, I know of at least two other women in hijab who have worked in news in Canada since I've been hired. So I hope that we can we can go in that direction and not just for Muslim women, but for you know diversity in general in news, recognizing how important it is, um, not just for optics, right? Um, but for experiences. So I'm hoping that you know my afterglow is, is opening the door for other people behind mm -hmm. me to, to take up this space. That is, that's beautiful. And not only the first woman in hijab, but also one of the first women of color. So yeah. opening those doors, which is very aligned with what Kamala Harris said as well, right? <laughs> I will be the first, but I will not be the last. Be the last, so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You are so inspiring and people cannot see your face. So hopefully we'll be posting some videos, but you have this light and energy about you. You've smiled through the whole interview. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's been such a great experience meeting you. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks so much for having me. That's a wrap for this episode of The Afterglow. Yet another courageous Canadian sharing her vision. Do us a favor and lift a sister up by sharing this podcast with others who want to find their afterglow. And let us know, what do you want to hear about? Who do you want to hear from? And what is your afterglow? Slide on into our DMs at The Afterglow Podcast Official and leave us a message. Did you love this podcast? 
Be sure to like and rate us on Spotify and iTunes and wherever you tune in. Until next time. Thank you so much to the Riches Group for sponsoring this episode for us. We are so indebted to you and grateful for all you've done for our community as well. Not only are you an incredible real estate agency servicing the beaches and other areas in Toronto, but you are always giving back to the community in donations, in charity, in um, helping out. And so we are grateful for you and really proud to have your name on our podcast. If you're looking for The Richards Group, you can find them at therichardsgroup.ca.